So um, tonight I thought we could spend a little time uh, bringing up whatever might be on your mind or whatever you'd like to dialogue or talk about. <clears throat> but let me uh, just preface the question and answer session with a little overview of my trip to England. It was quite nice. I uh, flew there with Ellen and we uh, had a couple of days, three days between the sort of the touchdown and the beginning of the retreat that I did with Carol Wilson and Joseph Goldstein. And it was an eight-day retreat. It went very nicely. What I loved was the I was completely anonymous. I knew none of the yogis over there at all. No one had, no one knew me. They were all from the continent and from England. And so it was just, it was really nice not to have anyone have any expectation. And then I could just flounder or whatever. <laughs> Didn't make any difference. Uh, and then after, uh, during that retreat, Ajahn Sundara was here speaking to you. And after the retreat was over, she flew back to England, which is where she lives. And we all gathered uh, for an insight meditation teachers meeting, in which there were about 50 of us. Um, about half of the people from the continent and Europe, the other half from the States. And it was a real pleasure. I, I, uh, but, but mostly I want to convey uh, how respectful and appreciative people are of coming here, not because I've set some standard, but because you set a standard. And I really mean that. Uh, Ajahn Sundar was telling me about just the container in which the Dharma was held here felt so she could relax so easily. There was uh, just a settledness among you all, a respect that you offered her, and an ease that she felt with her greeting. And person after person, uh, which is not always the case, and rarely the case actually, asked if they could come and, and teach her. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, um, people are very willing to come and so we have a nice assortment of people in 2010 including Ajahn Suchito who is one of the most senior monks in the Ajahn Chah tradition Ajahn Sundara who wanted to come back and we invited back um, Joseph is coming Ajahn Sumedho may well be coming so we have a vast array of very very senior uh, people who want to come uh, and they get invitations from all over everywhere uh, but they accept the invitations that they want and this is one of the places so uh, whatever you're doing in my absence keep doing it <laughs> because it, uh, it's really beginning to show itself so with that I'd like to open it up to any questions or comments you might have or areas of dialogue or uh, whatever that might might be um, on your mind, Dick. Right. Sure. Absolutely. The question is regarding investigation and 
in his KM group, he's studying the seven factors of enlightenment. And investigation is one of them, and he's wondering, came away a little confused about how that fits into his daily routine, uh, and wondered if I could comment. And I'd be happy to do that. Um, it's interesting, I think, that um, every Dharma student can find their definition within one of those seven factors. Uh, one that they lean into, the one that most represents their character or perhaps one that they're most interested in nourishing in themselves. And the factor of investigation is the factor that I feel most uh, connected with and have used to to, uh, my advantage considerably. And it's it's a very active expression of the Dharma. And I might say one that fits very comfortably within an engaged Buddhist's uh, toolbox of, of techniques and practices. And I'll explain that in a moment what I mean. But because we're uh, fully embodying our lives, most of us aren't uh, sectioning off long periods of intense retreating. Uh, the question arises... What's the mechanism, what's the interface between everything that goes on in me and with me and between the world and myself and this practice that can seem so remote to an active and somewhat busy person, right? And we might try different tools. We might try um, mindfulness. Uh, But the tool of mindfulness uh, requires us remembering to be mindful. Now, you try to remember to be mindful given all the other things you have to remember in a day and suddenly it slips from the memory entirely, especially when you get older. <laughs> Many things slip from the memory, but that certainly is one of them. So what's the, the accessibility? What's, it doesn't, it's not very accessible, is it? <clears throat> and so the rigors of the disciplined, mindful life may well suit the monastic because he's not or she's not engaged uh, where they're busy or where they're um, losing or have a a list of priorities that they have to do in the course of the day. And so they can move very gently into that form and expression of mindfulness. But for the engaged meditator, and may I say the engaged meditator, please get this point, is not a secondary meditator. If you really had it together, you'd be on retreat. If you believe that, then I don't know what you're doing here because I've never taught it. And I don't believe it for one moment. If I believed it, I would be a retreat teacher. I would be stationed where I felt the Dharma resided. But I know the Dharma resides where we reside. And the question is, how can we engage and interface so that we know that in an accompanying way uh, throughout our life. The first thing we have to do in order to set ourselves in the position is to have that certainty that we are in the right place for ourselves, that we aren't mislocated, that we shouldn't have been a nun if we had it together or we should be on retreat if we we, uh, were really serious and sincere. No, you should be right where you are. In fact, it's the only place you can be. There's no alternative to that. 
And the Dharma is looking at the no alternative. It's a non-alternative, right? It deals with what's the, where there aren't choices. The mind is what gives you choices. The Dharma doesn't give you choices. The Dharma says you're here. Now honor it. Awaken to that fact. It doesn't say that you should be somewhere else. There's nowhere is it written that you should be somewhere else. See, and so, okay, so when we realize that, suddenly we touch the earth. We say, oh, well, okay. This is the home. This is where I. This is where I abide. This is the true setting for everything. For everything sacred. Now it feels very mundane. My boss. <laughs> You know, my sick relative, you know, the weather, everything seems so mundane, so typical, so ordinary, so unusual. It's because we've glossed over everything with the trance of, of our conditioning, with the expectation of what it is, with the knowledge of its certainty. So everything is in the trance of the ordinary because we hold it there. We keep it fixed and, uh, and held within a particular um, relationship to ourselves and over time since that relationship is conceptual and abstract we get bored with it as you would with anything because it doesn't change your abstract idea of yourself may evolve over time but really it's not an active alive expression it's a concept and so you get bored with it don't you get bored with yourself I get bored with myself as long as I hold myself as an idea I get bored with life as long as I hold it as an idea. So the, the point of investigation is to break through that conceptualization so that we're no longer one idea facing another. And investigation asks pertinent questions of ourselves or of reality that break the hold that reality have on us in a fixed and established way. So investigation is the act of entering wonder. It's the willingness to move out of the ordinary, out of the routine, out of the boredom that we have produced. It's self-inflicted. No one has given this world and defined it as boring, except us. And challenging that stance of boredom by asking experiential and relevant questions about it. <coughs> First thing you might ask is, is it ordinary? And what do I mean by being ordinary? You see, and each question encourages a deeper response to a set pattern relationship with an object. So when I am sitting with my wife or you with your significant other, and we are just hearing them as we have heard them for years and years, all the years we've been together and we don't even hear them anymore. We know what they're going to say and we just give that response back. Suddenly, your heart wakes up. That's not acceptable to the heart. Routine is not acceptable. And so we plummet to, we're willing to move ourselves and encourage a relationship that isn't ordinary. And so we... We sit there and we say, okay, it requires a renewed invitation and interest in meeting this person and in meeting myself with this person. And sometimes when you meet somebody, you find out something radically different 
about them, which changes the nature of the relationship. And because it changes the nature of the relationship, then the relationship is never completely settled in itself. A relationship or any, any uh, object develops a, a steadiness, a predictability, because we hold it to be what we have known it to be. But when we free it up by asking a question about it or by holding ourselves at a lower level than our conditioned response to it or a deeper level than our conditioned response, suddenly it opens up into wonder. Wow, who is this person? Let me listen to who I don't know, not to who I do. Let me listen to who I don't know. And believe me, you don't know much about anything, and neither do I. If you do, you're going the wrong way in this thing. And the art of investigation takes us through the known into the field of wonder, into the field of mystery. Asking very simple questions. They don't have to be philosophical or abstract. They can be very relevant. And the reason I can't give you the question to ask is because the question you need to ask has to be individually determined. It has to arise from your heart, from where it is that you feel stuck, and from your willingness to move beyond that stuckness into a deeper relationship with life. As soon as you do, you will be aware. If you like the field of stuckness, of habituation and conditioning, that is the field of unconscious of unconsciousness. But what we're doing as a group is moving through unconsciousness and embracing the conscious. Now, when we're conscious of something, Everything is thrown into complete chaos in some ways. Nothing is set or fixed. Nothing is determined or known. And so our questioning can be a little scary because we're moving ourselves out of a predictable and certain field into something that is very unknown. Like, what is this? Who am I? Is this true? Questions that challenge the reference point that we have offered life, the certainty that we have offered life. You see, usually we are certain of one thing, the reality of me being here and you being there. That's the, so now most of our questions come from the, that duality. Like, how are you? What, how are you doing? You know, in my monitoring my mind in relation to what you're doing and all of that. But real questionings undermine and challenge the basic of foundation and assumption and view that we hold of the world. Those are real questions. Those are questions that undermine the very platform, the very foundation of the way we assume the world to be. Are you there and I'm here? Or is that an assumption based upon a certain resistance and contraction to life? I want to know that. Because if, it, if this isn't true, if it is true, and I discovered that it isn't, let's just get on with our ambition and our desire and, you know, to hell with everyone else because it's all about me. But if it isn't true, then everything changes. 
in this new relationship. And as we begin to ask questions, important questions, fundamental questions, we begin to challenge those assumptions and suddenly, suddenly we're on a very slippery slope. Oh, you want to be there? Do you want to be there or do you want to stay very stationary? If you want to stay very stationary, my advice to you is to practice mindfulness because it will be a burden and you'll feel over and over again how difficult it is and you'll probably be very, um, you'll feel very inadequate with that tool because you won't be able to keep it going and you'll think that you should be able to keep it going and on and on and on it'll go. And it'll be because the mindfulness isn't challenging anything. You're using it for your own means in order to what? To be mindful. That doesn't challenge any relationship at all. It doesn't mean it doesn't have a point in purpose. But for a busy urban dweller, it's almost impossible to do. Let's just admit that and find something that challenges in the right direction. That allows us an inroad into awareness by shaking the very foundation on which we have purported and report the truth. See? So, investigation I have found, inquiry, questioning, uh, it's not for everybody. Some people are in, un, incapable of, of asking the question because the questions remains, the only way they know how to ask questions is because it within their head. It remains a very intellectual exercise. And this question isn't about that. This question is a deep movement into the very foundation of our being. When you say, who am I? You're very, you're dead. Stop. There's not a lot of thought coming. You don't want to know your intellectual answer for who you are. You want to know experientially. So you want to discover who you are experientially in this moment. And that frames that frames the relationship very differently than an intellectual question. So if it isn't an easy transition and move uh, and movement for you, um, then I would stay with one of the other factors of enlightenment or one of the paramis and just keep encouraging those paramis forward and, and the nourishment of those paramis and the full blooming of those paramis or those factors of enlightenment, you'll find you'll touch awareness equally as available as you would if you would stay within the investigative factor. So it's not for everybody. But it was my main road in. And it's one that I feel is an underused expression of the Dharma. In fact, I think the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is contemplation of the Dharma, is investigation. That was what the Buddha was encouraging as a foundation for mindfulness itself. Because as soon as you question, as I mentioned, we, we are in the realm of awareness. We didn't have to bring it on by acting it, by uh, um, impl- applying a burden of mindfulness. It's within the willingness to question something and the set relationship we have about something that we break through the unconscious into a conscious connection. 
because you, when, we're, when we've broken through conditioning, what's left is awareness. That's what's left. We don't have to find it. We just have to remove the obstacle to it, which is the certainty about something. That's the obstacle to awareness. As soon as you don't know what something is, then you are aware. Isn't that interesting? One head nod, please. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Okay. So, yes? In personality, the difference between a conditioned reflective response and personality. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, Certainly part of character is our conditioned response to something, isn't it? But there's also a unique quality within each of us that isn't a conditioned reflex. Every one of us if we were authentically ourselves, which means that we weren't neurotically being who we think we should be or what we think the world wants from us, we would be unique. You would act very differently than I act. You would answer questions. You would behave very differently than every person you know. Hmm? That's really what life wants from us, is our uniqueness. It doesn't want our profundity. It doesn't want our wisdom. It doesn't want even want our enlightenment. It wants our uniqueness. Now, that uniqueness uh, is there, but it's hidden behind the conditioned way that we think we should be. And so mostly what we think of when we think of our character is the conditioned reflex, is the, the tight and trapped chamber that we live within and not the authentic sense of ourselves which we don't know when we awaken (coughs) out of this expression out of our neuroses when we awaken out of that we don't know what it's going to look like because we've been so caged and we may become very we might have been very shy before and now all of a sudden we can't shut up or I'll tell you how one way that it will all expressions of uniqueness Awakened uniqueness will be uh, driven by love. Okay? So that's one thing. Because that's, that's the medium out of which everything arises. So if you have dough and you make different shaped cookies, they're all still dough, aren't they? So all the characters, although they're different shapes of dough, the dough is basic love. So you'll find people being kind and some will be uh, that kindness won't be apparent but it will still be an expression of kindness from which they come so that's about all I have to say on that (laughs) yes in the back Yes. Yes. What do you do? 
No, no, like, very good question, please. See, you know, I, I'll go, like, I like to throw the rock really far. But everybody goes, well, that's nice. He just threw the thing across the water. But I'm about two feet in front of myself. So the rock didn't land there. So just bring me back, bring me back, and I'll just walk it forward. And now I can't remember your question. <laughs> Right. So what do you, right. Okay, so you see yourself reacting again and again within a conditioned response. And you recognize what you're doing, but so what? what what's the next step in that? Right? right? Yeah, okay, good. So what is the next step in that? Okay, so applying the investigative approach. First of all, the most important thing is to see the reactivity, to feel the reaction, and to have a sense of wonder about it, not condemnation. If you condemn yourself, you've conceptualized yourself. You've created a more hidden chamber from which that cannot be examined. You've darkened, you've distanced your attention from yourself. You see? You see how that works? Okay, it's very important to see this. So you begin to say, okay, you know, that doesn't work. I've tried that and I'm full of self-condemnation, I'm full of self-hatred. And just that no, just oozes out of me, and I hate every bit of myself, and life, and you, and everything else about it. So it doesn't work. So let me try real examination. Let me let myself into my heart so I can really look at this thing and see what seems so troubling about me, to reinvestigate, to re-examine what seems so troubling about me. So I find myself with, say, lying. Somebody will say something, and I tell, I distort the truth. And I've tried every means possible, shaming myself and praying and, I don't know, whatever means most of us have used to try to escape this entrapment of distortion. And still, when the situation comes up and I feel threatened, I lie. Now, suddenly, a new part of the, a new piece of information has come when I feel threatened. Okay, so let me look at that. So now we're investigating. This is investigation. Okay, so I feel myself threatened. I feel what it feels like to be threatened. I see that when I'm feeling threatened, I, my mind skips to something that wants to escape the threat or to promote myself from a different light than the fear response I have. So I find myself distorting the truth in order to protect my image. And I'm seeing that. I'm seeing why I just, you know, you see what you're trying to protect. You feel it in yourself. You feel that you're the need to protect yourself. That is a, that, that is actually experienced. And you go, okay, so now let me look at this. Whoa. So I see I'm trying to protect my image. Now what am I afraid of? See, this question will come, this next question will come very naturally from what we've just perceived. Now, why am I trying to protect that? What is it that I'm afraid of somebody seeing about me that I have to protect in my image? So, what am I, okay, so now I'm really interested in this. And so I ex- look at it and I say, okay. And I see myself telling a lie. And I see that what really matters to me is how they perceive me, not the truth of who I am. 
And so I see that stronger than the need to be myself is the need to have them like me. And that's why I lie. And I see that. I say, well, that's interesting. All along the way, I'm not self-condemning. I'm not being harsh. I'm just opening up this condensed and conditioned package of, the, of lying to my awareness. And I'm not shaming myself into it. I'm doing it because it's very interesting. And I'm coming to the root of the root of myself, said Rumi. Go look at the root of the root of yourself. So, okay, so now, here I am. I'm more into it, and I'm actually getting very interested in it. I'm no longer feeling so depressed because I'm such a liar. Right? And so now, I just keep following that path. And I think, okay, is it really, which is more important to me? I don't want to know. Really, that I don't want my authenticity, which means I have to own my mistakes because... Well, I mean, I don't know any human being that has been mis- hasn't been riddled with mistakes, so I have to own my humanness and all the mistakes I make, and that to, in order to settle with my authenticity. I see that. So why can't why can't I settle with my mistakes? Because I feel like a mistake. If I open to be expressing or showing you my mistake. Well, that shows you that I'm as, as unworthy as I believe myself to be. And I see that too. Now, I'm on to my unworthiness. I thought I was talking about lying here. <laughs> but now it's expressing itself. It's showing itself layer after layer. And so I say, okay, so now I'm, let me feel my unworthiness. And I'm just, okay, so I'm unworthy in my unworthiness. And I can feel it now that I'm tuned to it. And I can feel the simultaneity of lying and feeling unworthy. I can feel it. Both rise together. Because I've tuned myself into that feeling. And so then I have to, I keep journeying. Now I'm on to that and I keep journeying on and on. Right? Until you get to the point in which we will get through this line of reasoning, through this line of investigation. This is ridiculous. I don't need to do that anymore. I don't believe that I'm unworthy and I don't need to act and overcompensate for a feeling that I don't even believe anymore by lying. I don't need to do that. You still feel the tendency to lie because that's like a, a gun that has six rounds, shoots all of its six, but keeps pulling the trigger. That's what conditioning is. just keeps pulling the trigger. It's cats now or blanks, but it, the trigger keeps going. But you, you know, So you sit there and you go, <laughs> so the trigger gets pulled but you don't you just that's it and then the trigger no longer gets pulled and then that's it it's out it's out of your life it's out it's gone why because the unworthiness is gone and you thought you could do it through shaming yourself but shaming yourself was actually accentuating the unworthiness which was causing more lying which didn't help at all you see this is, you've got to go to the root of the root of yourself. The root of the root of yourself. Okay. Yes.
Yes. What is yes. 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 She says, in the past, I've talked about the pain of the unworthiness, investigating the pain. Right? Okay. So, really, following the pain line is what I just did. When you find yourself uh, expressing uh, or telling a lie, you'll find that simultaneous to that is a contraction of spirit, a need to protect, a fear response. Right? So, there's a pain in that. And... Really, the Buddhist teaching is when you feel that, go to it. I mean, there's something there that we need to stay on top of. Uh, so I was just substituting the word pain for all the other words I was using, but in every frame of reference of that investigation, what cued me to something going on was the pain I was feeling in relationship to it arising. Now, why is pain so important? Right? Now, usually we stay away from pain, right? If you know that there's a fire there, you're not going to put your hand in it. But this is a different kind of pain. Pain is where we are contracted, where we have, where we have formed a boundary. It's not, don't think of pain as like knee pain. Think of it as like fear, a fear response, a contracted response to life, where we back away from life because we're afraid of what life is going to offer in that moment if we don't back away. So, that, I don't know, the right word is not pain. The Buddha uses the word suffering. That seems a little dramatic to me. So contraction, self-contraction, I think is a nice way of framing it. Okay? Now, why is that important? See, I like, I like to just throw the whole... I, why would that be important? Why go there? Who cares whether I'm contracted or not? Well, one is that you begin, when you're accountable you see that you're contracting yourself. I'm contracting myself. Nobody's making me contract. It's like one of those um, sea anemones or... What what is it that goes... Is that that what they are? Right. It's just... You touch them and it's like that. Well, that's the way we are. We're a sea anemone. (laughs) (laughs) We're one of those. (laughs) So what, what... what we find is that the sense of me is never more predominant than when I'm contracted. The world is never more distant from me. I, feel, I never feel more isolated than in that self-contraction. Right? Now you look at that for a while. Feel that in yourself. Just get used to feeling that in yourself and see whether you enjoy that sense of contraction. Whether it is the, one of the most painful we're used to it, but if we look at it from so, any objectivity, it is just so, it's just so painful to be in a state of contraction. And many of us know people who live in that state of contraction all the time. And their life is just destined to be painful. So you realize when you're accountable that we govern that. We inflict our own pain. Now, I'm not masochistic. I don't want to do that. So if there's a way out, I want to know it. I don't want to be in pain. And I don't want to feel separate if separation is a lie. If I'm contracted, when I contract, you feel very distant to me and I feel very isolated within that distance. And the truth of life is that we are interconnected 
and much more unified than our eyes betray, then I take that sense of contraction to be a false statement of myself in relationship to the world. Well, I don't want to live in a perpetual lie by contracting around everything and forming new boundaries and protecting myself with lying and all the other illicit behavior. I want to, I want to step clean out of this thing. And so pain becomes the... I become very sensitive to any sense and form of contraction. And as soon as it happens, I'm right there with it. What just happened in that moment? I say to myself, and there's a courage that rises up. There's, there's a place that we that is beyond the mind in which we just we this is this is intolerable I will not stay contracted when I don't have to be and suddenly your idea of me is not as powerful as my willingness to escape the contraction and so I'll walk right out and if your opinions if you're if you try to hold me through your opinions to remain contracted which is what we do with one another we are each other's worst enemies because we don't want anyone to escape because we're not we're in prison we try to hold others in prison in prison as well through our judgment through our our use of language shame on you what's the matter with you and all the other ways that we keep people contained and limited and so we have to be very brave in this thing it's the true revolution the true radical because now you're up against three six billion other minds and so we begin to move. We begin to... And every step we take out of the concentric circles of that contraction frees other people to do the same. Do we realize that? Do we realize that everyone is influenced by our freedom? And especially family patterns which have formed deep entrenched forms of relationship amongst each person when you step out suddenly everything's chaotic everybody tries to get you back in your position and they know the right buttons to push in order to do that but if we're strong enough and just just keep moving ourselves then everybody has to form a new relationship with everyone not just yourself because you've broken the spiral you've broken the mold And it's actually beautiful to see. The greatest gift. But it does take courage. It does take courage. But you have that. Well, you wouldn't be here. Others, any
Shall we call it a night? We have some time. Yes, go ahead, Tori. Um, Bonnie and I were talking earlier, and um, we were wondering there was a time, there are, there are times when this magic of this practice shows up out of the group. So the madness? Madness. Magic of the practice. So, you are... Um, Maybe you're angry at someone and then all of a sudden some passion will show up. Right. 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 The wisdom said, the wisdom said, and let me reframe the question. She says that sometimes in the middle of a reactive pattern, suddenly she'll just have this moment in which a compassion will arise or a different response will arise that isn't based upon the righteousness of the... And she said, I realize I have no control over when it shows up. How can I make it show up more? (laughs) Okay? So I just want you to hear the inconsistency, dear. You don't. You don't. You can't. And this is where I'm writing this book. Okay? I'm writing a book all about just that question. So you're going to have like 300 pages to it. <laughs> but, it's, but it's the fact of where we put the emphasis. If we put the emphasis on our leadership, our role, our control in making our spiritual practice work, then we're going to find that it gets the the arena from which it operates gets narrower and narrower. What actually happens is that you see the less involved you are in your practice, and I don't mean uh, I don't mean that by that that you don't pay attention. I mean that through the attention and the attention only, not your need to manipulate what the attention sees or certainly not your need to judge or control what it sees, but just the seeing. That's the arena. That's the environment from which something new can arise. The more you compress that down and try to control what arising, the more your responses will be from your conditioning because the sense of you is your conditioning. Conditioning and the sense of you are one and the same. So when you try to control, you can just control through your ignorance. You can't control through wisdom. So when, as soon as we assert our need to, well, I want more of that, then we're not conscious of what it is that's actually working this thing. We, it is amazing how long that pattern persists, especially if we have emphasized it in every aspect of our practice. The sense of me doing it. The sense of me, you know, now I've got to sit, now I've got to do this, now I've got to do that, now I've got to be mindful. It never lets go of itself. It's always a burden and there's always more to do. And there's always a trail of pain and woe 
to that form of thinking. And the beauty of it is that it's really based, it's really expressed, and most of us, almost everyone in the room here, has tendencies in that direction. It's really based on mistrust. If we can just be honest, because I don't trust anything but myself. I don't have faith in anything but myself. This thing is going to happen. I, my mother told me I was going to be a nobody <laughs> and be worthless. And so I've got to pick myself up and make sure that my mother's label doesn't stick. And so I'm always feeling this kind of edginess and forcing myself to, to do the next right thing. <clears throat> this goes the opposite direction. We try to make our practice work through the only means that we know when we begin, and that's our effortful need to change, until the effort breaks our spirit, literally breaks our spirit. It doesn't work. Everything is closed off. At first we think, well, everything's only closed off to me. Everybody else is getting it. They're doing the same thing I am. They're getting it. I'm the one that's not getting it. See how we can take that? Especially when we feel disadvantaged to begin with, we're going to conclude in a disadvantaged perception. Oh, it's only me. I'm the only one. Every one of us, none of us can do it. Because it's not about me. There isn't a me to be it about. We just keep pretending that we're here but the pretending that we're here is the, area, is the very manifestation of ignorance. It's now, how is ignorance going to solve the problem? I keep imposing my ignorance on the problem. It's just going to get more ignorant. So i got to back off this thing. But I don't know where I'm going to back off to and what's going to come in to fill the void. Because... And we hear all of the admonitions about, you know, you'll, you'll be worthless and I'm a nobody and I can all that. And we say, I can't do it. That's it. My hands are, I can't do it. If I could do it, I would do it. I cannot do it. That's real humility. That's the humility of truth. And so... I have to give myself over. But I also realize that my conditioning, which is me, isn't going to do it. So conditioning isn't the way to do it. But all I know is conditioning. So let me look and see whether there's something else. And as soon as I look and see whether there's something else, something else arises besides the conditioning. Because the looking is not self-promoting. And now, it starts to move magically. Much of what I say, first of all, no thought goes into anything I've said tonight. Well, how could it? I don't know what questions you're going to ask. Much of what I've said, I haven't said before, or if I've said it before, I, it's, it's very alive to me as I'm saying it, as if it were brand new. 
So it's not coming from a packaged reflection. And I sit down here and I think, okay, I may have nothing to say. And something always comes. I'm not promoting it. I'm not looking to make it happen. And it's not self-generated. So what's moving it? I don't know. How could I possibly know what it was? Because as soon as I do, I claim reference to it and it becomes my ignorance. (laughs) And this is not about ignorance. So this is very interesting. See, this is the end of what I can say. Because we're like, (laughs) I don't know. Ask me, what is it? I I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) We can talk about how to get here, but we can't talk about anything else. That's all we can talk about. This is much, much deeper than any of us realize here. This is not a small thing. This is big. This isn't about me and my practice and how I'm having trouble finding my breath. This is big. This is really big. You want to come? Come on. Know our full potential. Know what you really are. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. So you stepped out of yourself so by challenging yourself. You ch- the trigger was feeling so well, suffering. Right, suffering. 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 Right. So it brought up a courage. You see, the, she said she was uh, f- having to give a talk to a crowd and she was feeling anxious about it. And she began to investigate that and said, you know, where is the, what was the word? Who am I in full confidence? confidence? You see that? You called that forth. You called that parami, that resolve forth. And so it arises. I don't know where that comes from. And then when it arises, there's room. Fear closes the door to any other possible relationship except intimidation. But courage opens the door to metta, to patience, to generosity, to love, doesn't it? And so you just, so you weren't willing to stay within the confines of the limited sense of you, right? Okay, so that, okay, so you see that wasn't a bigger you, wasn't a, it was something else. It was something else that took hold. It was a space that you gave yourself to be. You you gave yourself over to the space rather than to the image. 
and everything steps through space. If you have a round hole, everything can get through. If it's all opaque and closed down, nothing can get through, which is fear. And so this is just creating space for that wonder to transform. Every one of you try that, you know. (coughs) Call yourself forward. Yes. It seems to me that uh, when you talk about this, there's a curiosity. Curiosity. Yes. That's really more about um, um, the curiosity isn't really about getting an answer to what you're curious about. The curiosity is opening up more awe about it. Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. He said. He says, as, you're, as I'm speaking, you get more curious about what I'm saying. And he says that the curiosity is not about having an answer to the curiosity. It's not finding a solution to what you're curious about. It's opening you up to the curiosity. is itself opening you up to the all. Now, that's the hardest thing. Because when you ask yourself a question, it opens you up to wonder when you don't know what the answer Right? Isn't it irritating? God, I don't know the answer. Right? We look past the awe, the wonder, which holds, which is not having the answer. We find it very irritating that I don't know the answer. Because our whole assumption is based upon what I know. And so if I don't know something, it implicates us as being unknowledgeable. And so we fight that role, that image, by looking for the answer. But when you know you're nothing, (laughs) then you look for the nothing to confirm that nothingness. And holding yourself in wonder doesn't mean the curiosity. It's like, what is that? And you're like, whoa, this is an amazing space. What is that? Not what is that so I can find the answer, but what is that so I can enter the wonder? And you feel the wonder. And you don't try to close. Why well, quite close down to it? And then, which is absolutely serendipitous, I do not know how this answers, how, how this works, the answer comes. I have no idea how that works. It comes from somewhere. You truly want to know something which is like Cohen practice, or creativity. When you really want to know something, I mean heart and soul, if you really want to know who you are, or even the solution of a Cohen, somehow this nonsensical, completely irrelevant, what's a dog's true nature, or something, Suddenly, there's an answer. Where does that answer come from? I don't know. That's the true response to where does that answer come from? I do not know. That's where it comes from. It comes from I do not know. (laughs) Okay. Thank you all. (laughs) It's nice to come back. 
It's nice to be back. I don't like traveling that much. I don't like the wear and tear in my body. I don't like all the acclimation I have to go through. I just can sit here and never move. (laughs) Thank you all. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.